on the cusp of the Roaring Twenties. This is the final episode of Aquarium Drunkard's Transmissions podcast for the year 2019. My name is Justin Gage here in Los Angeles. And on this episode, Aquarium Drunkard contributor Josh Neese reflects on Dead Man's Pop, the replacements box set that radically decontextualized the band's poppiest album, Don't Tell a Soul. But first, my co-host Jason Woodbury in conversation with cult synthesizer hero Don Murrow. Earlier this year, Flannel Graph Records continued its archival dive into the world of Don Murrow. Educator, synth pioneer, and all-around genuine soul, with the reissue of Anthology, his 1981 LP, which features jazzy funk, synth-pop, and progressive fusion rock. Back before synth culture was a thing, Murrow and his compatriots adhered to a DIY ethic. I sat down with Don to talk not only about how he got his hands on such advanced musical tech, but how he started his own label to distribute his music, and what it's been like to see a whole new generation embrace it. All right, without further delay, let's get into it. Here's Don Murrow on the Transmissions Podcast. Don, thanks so much for joining me here on the Aquarium Drunkards Transmission Podcast. Thanks very much for having me. So, Flannel Graph Records recently reissued your 1981 album, Anthology. What was it like revisiting that record? Oh, it was great. Uh, That was the second album I did uh, back in the day that was released. I had recorded a lot of material before that, and Jason... Uh, uh, Jared, excuse me, had been very kind in uh, one expressing an interest in hearing my unrecorded music, or I should say, unreleased music, and he um, then uh, was brave enough to actually release a lot of it. So um, to have this one released, uh, or I should say, re-released, uh, was great. I had the opportunity to take it into uh, a great mastering engineer in Brooklyn named Alex Deturk, and he's done some great work with a lot of people and. You know, you walk into this room and you shut the door, you feel like you're in a sealed box. It's, it's acoustically tight. And to hear your tracks through a, you know, six-figure sound system by a guy in his 20s who had the ears, who has the ears that I think I had back then, and I just turned it over to him because I just, you know, I'm 68 years old now. I just don't trust my ears. And I think anybody who does trust their ears at 68 is... Uh, Got a little bit of a vanity because scientifically it's just not there. So it was just wonderful to have him do it. And of course, my son and my daughter, my son-in-law, checked it out and they just said, "You know, it sounds sounds great. It's just very consistent." So I think I think the re-release sounds better than the uh, original release, uh, even though the original release was mastered by uh, Greg Colby, who was a one of the top mastering engineers back in the day. Did anything strike you as you listened to it? What did you sort of remember about yourself um, at that time that maybe you had uh, maybe you had spaced out or forgotten about? Um, I actually remember it very well because what I did um, I had an English teacher who encouraged us all to write down you know logs about our lives and all the things we were going through I, I kept a log but not about my life about my recording gear and equipment and you know, performances that I did so I know exactly when I got my 16-track tape recorder, and Anthology was all done on 16-track. There was one song, I think it was Laudate, that actually was recorded on 8-track, but what I, what I did, I copied it over to the first 8-tracks on the 16-track. And having 16-tracks, um, 
coming off of eight was just nirvana for me because it just gave you so many more options to arrange, to double things, to try out uh, new parts, and to obviously to uh, correct mistakes. Um, so that I remember, that was my launching pad uh, project when I got my uh, new 16-track uh, tape recorder. And I got a new board for that uh, at that time as well. So um, it was a real exciting time for me artistically, but also in terms of working with, uh, you know, a new set of equipment. Yeah, yeah. So Flannel Graph has been in the process for the last couple of years. I think that we uh, initially spoke about its time maybe in 2013. So since then, they've been reissuing stuff from your archives. Um, this is maybe the, the, the fourth or fifth release uh, altogether. Um, I know that you had recorded back in the late 70s and early 80s a pretty massive bank of music. You alluded to it. Is there still a lot of unreleased stuff in the library? Um, um, there is. There, there is actually... Um, I have enough material for two more albums uh, and an EP, uh, possibly two EPs. Uh, and after that, the what's left is pretty pretty raw pretty experimental uh basically like uh, learning sessions you know um but it, it was a lot and uh, it goes back to um as as jared has released you know some of it went back to the uh, late 60s so if i listen to it i go back i can basically hear the evolution of what equipment i had at the time according to how good the music sounds from a technical aspect sure uh, but i didn't really care i mean of course i cared but I was much more involved with the music itself, uh, even though I was a, a geek before the word geek kind of you know evolved. I was fascinated. I remember seeing the Beatles and then Sullivan. I was fascinated by the guitars, you know, and, and then the Vox amps, and then you started you know seeing bands like the Ventures with their matching Moserai guitars and matching Fender amps. I was I was very into the uh, the uh, equipment side of it as well as the music, the creative part of it as well. Sure. Uh, where, where some other people, I remember reading an article saying Paul McCartney, you know, they asked him what strings he put on his bass. He didn't know. <laughs> right. Mean, that, that's the other extreme, but it doesn't matter. You know, if, you, if you're making music, to some extent, it doesn't matter. Obviously, it matters more to a lot of people today because the equipment helps you pick your voice uh, as far as what instruments you use. And we're so into, you know, these boutique sounds. It's got to be this Jazzmaster guitar or it's got to be this Vox 12 string or else it's not the real deal. I mean, in one sense, I really get off of that. But the other sense, who cares? Just play the music. <laughs> you know? Sure, so, uh, sure. Uh, um, as I, going back to the root directory of that, my recordings, basically, you can hear kind of the evolution of not, not just my music and where I was going in terms of composition, but also how I was doing with acquiring equipment and the quality of the recordings from the late 60s up until, uh, up until I got the 16-track in 1979. So, obviously, you were... A kind of a gearhead in a lot of ways. You were really interested in not just, you know, the technology that was available to you, but different ways of sort of capturing that and, and sort of getting unique sounds from it. But I wonder if you could uh, tell me a little bit more about really just what it was that was fueling you beyond the technology to just spend so much time creating and capturing these sounds did you spend just a lot of time in in the studio during those days oh yeah i basically lived there um i mean i just that was that was my playroom um 
and I just uh, was also, you know, I had a turntable set up in there, and I would just buy records, go out and buy five records, some of them just by how the cover looked, and, and play them and listen to them, and try to listen, first just sit back and listen as a uh, layman listener, if you know what I'm saying, then listen to it very uh, critically in terms of, of what was going on with the recording techniques, with the stereo placement and all of that, and try to analyze. And then things that resonated with me, I just kind of said, oh, okay, I'm going to keep that. I'm going to, I'm going to keep that. For example, I remember uh, one of the early toll out, what was it, Aqualung or... Where Ian Anderson had this very... That's oh, it? Oh, yeah. Jethro uh, Tull? Yeah, that's right. I'm sorry. Many of your listeners probably don't know who they are. <laughs> but, uh, prob- they, they probably okay. do, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I take so many things for granted, uh, and, I, and it's such a different world now, so forgive me if I allude to something that might not be obvious. Uh, I think it was Aqualung, and um, maybe now before that, where Ian Anderson had this real bright uh, acoustic guitar sound, and basically, you know, it was... Um, done by uh, using an equalizer to basically roll off the low end and just give it this real silky sheen. I said, boy, that's a beautiful sound. And I didn't have an EQ uh, array nearly as uh, powerful as Trident Studios, or I think that's where it's recorded. But what I did was I actually ran my acoustic guitar through a filter on my ARP synthesizer to create what's called, called like a high-pass um, filter effect. You actually used it to roll off the low end. And I actually recorded with that. So I, I listened to re- commercial recordings as a stimulus to see, you know, what people were doing. And then that would trigger something for me to try to either emulate, you know, 100% of it really floored me uh, or to use as a launching pad for something that I could take kind of yeah. to my own next step. Like your other records, Anthology really hops around stylistically. You're kind of jumping from hard rock to jazzy funk to more minimal work. When you were originally making your records, were you aware how sort of all over the map you were? Um, Yeah, to a degree. I mean, I knew um, it wasn't... I knew I wasn't going to... The biggest problem was, where are we going to put this in a record store? You know, what what kind of music is it? Because it was all over the place. But, see, back then, I was was doing a lot of traveling and a lot of performing, basically doing, like, solo uh, synthesizer concerts and and programs and and going into colleges and doing, like, classes, uh, master classes and workshops. And back then, you know, I I basically... We printed uh, copies of the album, and I just sold them, you know, basically on the road and uh, did pretty well with it so nobody was really saying you know what are you going to categorize this they came and heard me play and if they liked it they bought the album so it was bad from a marketing perspective as far as uh, having all that all those different styles on there but i didn't do that as a marketing ploy myself just i enjoyed all these different musics i uh you know grew up classically trained but i was i was listening to everything now today a lot of people do that and a lot of people a lot of great musicians are very comfortable in more than one musical idiom back in the 60s and 70s there were a few few guys doing that but it wasn't you know you usually got labeled as a classical player or a rock player or a jazzer and then the whole jazz fusion crossover thing started and you started getting this blurring of genres and actually some new genres coming along and it was a real exciting time so I was kind of caught up in that and I, I just said you know if this resonates with me and this is what I feel like saying musically I'm going to go with it so yeah. anthology was more was more kind of I, you know the term jazz rock fusion it was more instrumental leaning more towards jazz than rock um, 
uh, although there were obviously still rock elements in there, and there was one vocal that was kind of like a a farewell to my 70s vocals. Uh, after after anthology, with, I got so involved with the synthesizer that I basically stopped singing, and after the uh, drum machine, the Lin drum came out, and, and they became so common. I hate to say it, but I, I stopped playing drums, although I did <laughs> finally this year, that, that in May, I bought a, a drum set. And wow, started, a start, sort of a return. Again. But that, that was a break of you know, how many decades of not playing, but it's so much fun. It's just so physical. I mean, I don't have one-tenth the technique I had back then. Even, I mean, not, not that I was a great drummer, but I mean, I was at least competent. But it's just so much fun to go back to the physical instrument. And it, you play differently than you program, obviously. You know, and it's just, we, got all, we all got so spoiled by the accessibility of sample drum sounds that... I think, you know, obviously something was gained, but something was lost as well. And I, didn't, I really enjoy seeing some of the bands that are on to, you know, still play all acoustic, no sequencers, no backup tracks. So it's it's enjoyable to see that, but I'm, I'm not, certainly not denigrating what's going on with, um, with electronics uh, since then as well. So going back to anthology, you know, um, that was the last, I think that was the last album I played guitar on as well. Um, yeah. So it's so it's it's sort of this bridge between your more ambient or, or new age work and and the rock yeah, totally, work that's sort right, of totally defined. electronic work exactly yeah exactly that's that's a good way to put it. Well, you've obviously devoted a lot of your career to exploring the possibilities afforded by by synthesizers, you know, M- M- Moogs and and uh, and Buklas and and you know Arp synths. What what drew you to those tools in the day? Um, um, the first, well, the first synthesizer, I'd heard um, the, you know, the tape music of people like uh, Vladimir Usachevsky and uh, others back in the 60s, but it was switched on Bach, which came out in 1968, which turned me on to um, layering and, number two, the fact that you could do tonal music on the synthesizer. And I had been trained, you know, as a keyboardist, and I was, um, was I taking, yeah, I was taking uh, pipe organ, classical organ lessons at the time, and I put that record on, and it just blew me away. I mean, just the sound of it. I mean, I, I actually just played the record not too long ago, and still, the sound of that record, that raw, those Moog 901B oscillators, it just, it's like... Carlos just plugged the oscillator directly into the tape recorder. It just comes at you. It's so raw and big, and it's exciting because it's just totally new territory. It was just so exciting. So that that got me hooked, uh, that, and I said, you know, I've got, I got to get one of these some, somehow. And um, uh, I had the opportunity to work on a modular Moog. Uh, I think it was a System 2C, and then people were talking... I forget who specifically told me about it, this new company called ARP, and I went up to ARP in the summer of 1970, and uh, they only had the big instrument, the 2500, which is a massive uh, you know, three-panel instrument costing about $7,000, but uh, David Friend, who later became the president, uh, CEO, just told me, uh, he was a young guy, he was about five years older than I was, and uh, he said, you know, keep in touch, we, I think we're going to be coming out something you'll be interested in. And sure enough, in, next spring they came out with the ARP 2600, which was their portable suitcase model. And I wound up getting one of those, uh, well, actually one of the prototypes, one of the, what was called the Blue 
Marvin, named after Marvin Cohen, I think, who was the attorney for the company at the time. And obviously a takeoff on a blue mini, but um, I got one of those, and that was my first synthesizer that I owned, and um, the addiction was set. That was it. <laughs> what what kind of community was there sort of around these synthesizers? How did you engage with people who were, you know, exploring similar possibilities with you and, and sort of communicate and pick up tips from them? Was there was there a way to do that back then, or did you sort not, of feel not, isolated? In yeah, in 1971, no, not really. I mean, there were so few people doing it, and, you know, the primary owners, uh, the majority of owners of synthesizers before them were universities and studios because they were so expensive. Um, I think Moog had, there was one users list, you know, around 1969-70, there were like 28 musicians as opposed to, you know, universities and studios, and and, and that's including like, you know, big jingle writers who actually bought them and used them um, professionally. So sure. the, the community, as compared to today, there was no community. You know, there was no, obviously no internet, there's no way of communicating the first, you know, the owner's manual for um, uh, the Minimog was essentially a schematic. You know, so it's right. learned. I learned basically by locking myself in the room with the Moog and staying in there for six hours and just plugging something in, unplugging it, plugging something in, unplugging it, and through trial and error, figuring out what did what, and um, you know, taking it from there. But it was a labor of love. I just, I just loved that I go in that room and shut the door, and six hours would fly by, and I think an hour went by. So uh, it's so much easier to learn, you know, synthesis in all its forms today because of um, the teaching tools that are available, the internet, the, 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 the YouTube tutorials. So, I mean, what it took me months to learn, you can learn a couple of weeks today. But back then, it was it was really pioneer stuff and very exciting. You uh, also, basically, you, you started your own label to release your music um, in the late 70s and the early 80s. What was it like running a, a DIY label back then? I know you mentioned that people uh, mostly purchased your your records uh, at shows, at live performances. But but did you manage to get distribution and get them into record stores in some places as well? Yes, yes. Uh, we never had an official distributor. Uh, I basically, when I went to a college town like Ithaca or Pittsburgh or someplace, I would go into the, the record store and say, uh, "Listen, I'm going to be doing a concert here tonight or something." And uh, you know, would you like to? Have, and what they would do, they would take like half a dozen of them on consignment. And in many cases, not certainly not all, they would uh, you know call up and say, "Can you send some more?" So I, you know, it's not like we had a full-time distributor out there pushing it for us. It was real, real, you know, homemade stuff, uh, feet on the ground. But you know, it worked, um, and we had total control over it, and um, uh, it got the word out to a very small kind of underground electronic music community back then. Is is that where your records were filed? Did they did they file them in the electronic section or or good, did they file good them? Que- <laughs> yeah, <laughs> excuse me, that's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. Uh, because, sure, you. you, know, you if, I, if I was in Pittsburgh, I dropped them off and I uh, was gone. So. <laughs> right, 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 right. Um, I think it's so interesting because. As you mentioned, now it's it's pretty uh, common for musicians to sort of jump and incorporate a lot of styles. But at the time, you know, I guess it probably would have been if I'm imagining myself as a record store clerk in in one of those stores listening to your record. I wouldn't know. Do I file this next to 
ELO, you know, or do I file it in a more experimental section or, or what? Because you really were kind of, uh, you were really kind of crossing the lines. Yeah. 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 I, it was very naive in terms of, uh, of uh, creating a, a package or an identifiable image that people could say, oh, Don Muir, okay, that's going to be uh, synth rock or it's going to be, uh, you know, pop rock with some synths on the side or it's going to be synth instrumental. I just, I didn't really have a good idea of packaging myself. But it seemed, as I said, it's, at the time it seemed to work, and uh, you know we we did a couple of pressings of it. So you you went on you performed with uh, a lot of big names, sort of in the jazz rock world. Um, people like John Schofield and and Paul Winter. Were you working as a session guy while you were making your own albums, or did that come a little bit later? Uh, that that came later, and actually, uh, you know, uh, with. Um, uh, John Schofield, we met. We were both teaching um, at. Uh, we were both teaching a summer workshop at uh, Ithaca College. He was doing a jazz guitar, and I was doing uh, synthesizers. And um, a, a former uh, neighbor, neighbor, he grew up in the same town. Uh, a guy named Steve Brown was the guitar instructor up there. And actually, when I was like 12 years old, I took some guitar lessons from him. And uh, he connected us, and we, you know, we hit it off because of uh, you know all the music that we kind of liked. Because he had just come off of uh, Billy Cobb and George Duke band. And I told him I was working on an album, and he was, was interested in playing on it. So we just kind of kept in touch, and I, he actually came out to uh, my studio on the island uh, a few months later and laid down the part uh, to that song. So I never, I never toured with him uh, or anything like that. But uh, you know, we just connected and he recorded that part for the track and I was more than happy with what he did. Great player. <laughs> you, you've continued to work um, as an educator, which you alluded to there. Um, when, when did you start When did you start teaching like people how to utilize synths in a way similar to you, the way you did on this record? I, I did my first faculty workshop at a school in like 1972 and it was pretty basic but uh, and then I, I taught my first graduate course uh, I think it was like Indiana University of Pennsylvania in like 1974 or five, and then um, uh, that went over real well. But boy, talk about trial by fire! 1975, I brought my ARP 2600 and my ARP Odyssey with me, and I, I had those two keyboards, and I had 40 people in a room. <laughs> so it, oh, wow. it was rough. Let me tell you, talking about doing a, a song and dance. And of course, you know. Yeah, no, no kidding. No PowerPoint, nothing, nothing. You know, you got the instruments, you got a chalkboard, and you got forty people staring at you. <laughs> and so, um, I we made it work. You know, I bought a lot of records and made reel to reel tapes of uh, and cassettes of like uh, excerpts of things. They they had a great understanding, but obviously it wasn't a hands on workshop. So um, each workshop got a little better. I you know just by learning what not to do and what worked. And then by the late 70s, I had interest from um, ARP loaned us these little modular synthesizers. They were called a modular synthesizer lab. And they gave us enough of them so that every teacher could finally have their own little setup. And that was the beginning of the hands-on uh, approach. And then after ARP went down, uh, Korg was very helpful in sponsoring uh, and providing, I should say, workshop instruments for me. And I got to the point in the late 80s where I would have two 16-station, and early 90s, where I'd have two 16-station 
uh, labs, complete with headsets where I could communicate, basically give private lessons if I wanted to. I mean, that's how far the technology had come. Think of it like a language lab, but only with, with uh, electronic keyboards. And I had two setups, and they would leapfrog from one college to the next. So I could go out eight weeks in the summer. And while I was teaching at, say, Duquesne University, the other setup was going to uh, Villanova. And then now when I finished at uh, Duquesne, that would go to uh, Central Connecticut or, uh, you know, another school uh, uh, anywhere. I mean, it was a pretty wide distance, but they had a week to get there. So it was really nice to have that, and it made teaching so much easier because everybody had their own instrument, everybody had their own flying machine. So I, and I enjoyed teaching. It was, it was very rewarding and um, had some very, very bright, you know, great musicians of uh, classically trained or jazz players who just wanted to know about synthesizers. Because back then, you know, even in the early 80s, people, there were still a lot of people that didn't know about them when the computer thing started. You know, you're basically saying, this is the disk drive. You know, you're talking, using an Apple IIe or something. So it was really, as I said earlier, it was really pioneer times. And to see how far it's come is just tremendous. <laughs> Tremendous. Do you keep up with experimental and electronic music these days? You mean that's being a creative? Yeah. Yeah. Not. Yeah. Not as much as I should. Uh, my my children turn me on to things uh, once in a while, and um, I you know I try to, but there's so much out there, which is good and bad because the, you know because it's hard to find things. And uh, I hate to say it, but there's a lot of music out there that's really not, doesn't bear repeated listening. Sure, you know? it's sure. Just, it's, all, it's all, you know, monodynamic, sequenced, every note is perfectly in tune, every note is precisely on the beat. I mean, I'm, I'm exaggerating, but you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I feel like I'm, some of this music, I get everything they're putting out after one hearing. Right. And I really have no desire to hear it again, where there's other music, I say, boy, that was really enjoyable and on you know, many different levels, and that's that's a sign of, you know, good music, that you want to come back and hear it, you want to explore it from another angle, and uh, <clears throat> it's great to see that, and, and <coughs> excuse me, the tools are just amazing today, you know, for those of us who grew up with splicing tape, the elasticity of audio today is just, in my, even, even after living with so many years, it just makes me laugh. What you could do with audio now, thinking back, what you could do with it in 1969 and 1970. Yeah, I mean, I've I've got a little Moog app on my phone, and of course, the sound is nowhere near as rich or full or beautiful as you know an actual unit. But at the same time, uh, the accessibility is is pretty much unparalleled. You know, you can yep. you can kind of plug in and and make all sorts of cool sounds. Whereas when you were making these records, it was a much more involved process. Oh yeah, you know? and it was, it was so laborious. I mean, it was you know all this. Tw- Speaking and, and trying to squeeze everything you could out of the limitations of the equipment and trying to squeeze everything you wanted to on, you know, first two tracks, then four tracks, then eight tracks. And now, you know, you walk around with an iPad or you walk around with a MacBook and you've got tracks, with, you know, there's no limit. You know, I feel there was a, there was a yeah. recent update to Logic where um, I think this is, now it's up to correct, uh, somebody might be, correct me if I think it said now it has a thousand track capability. So I wrote to my journal and said, oh, boy, finally, you know, now I can really get some good music done. <laughs> that's, that's what I've been waiting for, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, right. Uh, that, that's, that's great. Well, what you made back in these, in, in these early days, you know, when you really were kind of pioneering uh, in, in the field, um, 
it's held up and, and people really enjoy listening to it uh, to, to this day. And, and I, I count myself among them. So I want to thank you so much for taking the time to, to kind of dive in and discuss this stuff here on the Transmissions Podcast. Well, thank you, Jason. I've enjoyed talking about it. In October, Aquarium Drunkard ran a review by Josh Neese of Dead Man's Pop, a new box set that showcases an alternate timeline version of the replacement's 1989 LP, Don't Tell a Soul. Among fans, there was always a rumor that Don't Tell a Soul was the album that could have been a contender if it hadn't been cooked to death, Josh wrote. But unlike most rock and roll hypotheticals, that box set allowed for a glimpse of what could have been. Here's Josh with more personal reflections on Dead Man's Pop. You press your luck Up against his body Now you're stuck But you like it down and dirty The last six years have been an amazing time to be a fan of The Replacements. If I've learned anything in the age of the reunion, it's that the most successful ones usually combine a few factors. Chief among them, that the band has been out of the spotlight for a significant enough amount of time, that they come back as good or better live than they were before, and they either come loaded to bear with new recorded material that rivals the old, or are willing to take the money and run. Mission of Burma and Wire are both examples of bands who came back with some outstanding new material. Dinosaur Jr. did something similar with their original lineup and a dynamic group of records. But my favorite band of all time, they weren't up to the task. And honestly, that's okay. When the final reunion shows for The Replacements happened in 2015, I was grateful the band had had their day in the sun again, a victory lap long in the making. When Bob Mayer's book Trouble Boys was released in 2016, it felt like a fitting coda in some ways, but also the deep dive the band richly deserved. People had tried before. Michael Azrad, of course, devoted 50-ish pages to the band in his excellent Our Band Could Be Your Life in 2001, but it, of necessity, stopped before the release of their first major label album. Jim Walsh's oral history, All Over But The Shouting, came in 2007, a year after the band released a best of with two newly recorded songs, and a year before the band's studio albums were reissued with bonus tracks. But sadly, it was the severe stroke suffered by guitarist Slim Dunlap in 2012 that seems to have been the main impetus for the band getting back together even if it was just mainly Paul Westerberg and Tommy Stenson at this point. In 2017, we got the first major new addition to the replacement's canon, even if those of us who had been fans had heard it before. For sale, live at Maxwell's, was the famous 1986 Hoboken, New Jersey show from the Tim Tour, just a few months prior to the firing of Bob Stenson, and it's also the band in very good form. This year, though, brought out something really unique, not just in the annals of the replacements, but for bands in general. Don't Tell a Soul has long been a misbegotten member of the Matt's catalog, criticized for being one of the most overproduced and 80s-sounding of any of their albums. But it had long been discussed that producer Matt Wallace and the band had a different vision for the album than had been the outcome of mixer Chris Lord Algie's final version. And this was it. Using tapes stumbled upon in Slim Dunlap's house by his wife Chrissy, 
Wallace was able to finish a rough final mix he had started in 1988. This new, original version of the album is accompanied by an earlier aborted attempt at recording with producer Tony Berg, some other cast-offs from the sessions with Wallace, a boozy nighttime hangout with Tom Waits in a studio, and a two-disc live show from 1989 with the band on tour for the album. This is where I'll stop playing simple historian and start talking personally. My age plays an important part in this story for two reasons. First, because I was born the year that the band's debut, Sorry Ma Forgot to Take Out the Trash, was released, I didn't become a fan of the band until after they'd called it a day. Somewhere in high school, having seen the video for Bastards of Young on MTV, I ordered a copy of Tim from my BMG record club, and from there it was off to the races. Westerberg's solo career was something I paid attention to. I remember traveling to the nearest big city to buy Sue King Gratifaction on the day it was released. And when I got to college, I was able to use Napster and various record shops to track down the solo work of Slim Dunlap, Chris Mars, and Tommy Stinson's various projects. But I never expected to hear new replacement music in my lifetime. This brings us to Dead Man's Pop, the new box set. I was always a fan of Don't Tell a Soul. Don't ask me why exactly. I agree that the production is among the most, eh, let's call it period appropriate, of any of their albums. But the songs, the songs are another thing entirely. You can watch Westerberg's songwriting evolve in real time over the run of albums from 1984's Let It Be all the way up to 89's Don't Tell a Soul. Let It Be is at least half filler. Really good filler, mind you, but the classic songs hit the goofy or snotty ones at about a one-to-one ratio. That changes starting with Tim. There are always those kind of weirdo rockers that slide into the album, things like Lay It Down Clown and Dose of Thunder or Please to Meet Me's Red Red Wine and Shootin' Dirty Pool. But the leaps Westerberg's songwriting takes are massive, and it's clear he's got a better fix on who he wants to be. By the time Don't Tell a Soul comes along, he's started to master the balance. The chicanery is expertly mixed in with the songs now, the proper balance of humor and pathos lining the songs. Obviously, the new Matt Wallace mix isn't new songs, but it feels like a completely different album, not only because of his mix, but because of the rearranged sequencing of the tracks. Talent Show still opens the album, but the new mix brings it to life in a way that was always denied it on the original version. Having heard the band tear through it live on many bootlegs over the years, I knew the song's capability, and here it's much more present. So is the humor. The song has a goofy, let's go, but let's not try too hard sort of sentiment to it. When Westerberg's plucked banjo comes sailing in over the last part of the song, I laughed out loud the first time I heard it. Resequenced order comes into play immediately afterward. Where Back to Back had long been the second track, it now occupies the space at the front of the second side of the album. In its stead is the single I'll Be You, previously buried in the middle of the second side. I'm going to admit something. I got teary-eyed when it came on the first time I listened to this new version. Hearing it soar out of my speakers in that second spot, the retouched beauty of the replacement's highest ever charting single, number 51 with a bullet, was too much for me. And that feeling continued through the album. 
The different sequencing and the amazing mixes, especially of songs like Darlin' One, They're Blind, and Asking Me Lies, which are all given revelatory makeovers, leave me feeling like I've been gifted something completely new as a fan, and in reality, I had been. In high school, it would have been hard for me to imagine this kind of reverent package being put out. The closest I got was the 1997 All for Nothing, Nothing for All set, and its B-sides and unreleased second disc, which I listened to over and over. But since the reunion, not only has my loved and beaten up cassette bootleg of that aforementioned Hoboken show been given a vinyl upgrade, but one of my long secret favorite albums of theirs has as well. And as a fan, I've come a long way from when I was a teen and was asked who my favorite band was and then almost immediately had to try and explain who the replacements were. The band is a lot more present as a part of rock history, and their legacy now seems like something they're actually interested in taking care of. I said my age came into play twice, and here's the second instance. The live discs that accompanied this box set come from a show played right after one of my favorite moments in the band's later years, their performance on the International Rock Awards, a forgotten award show that was trying to be both hip and part of the pop world. Why they ever invited their replacements to play is another story. As I recently watched them impishly rock their way through talent show on that broadcast, thanks to YouTube, and what a perfect song for that particular stage, I realized that my favorite band, the one I always looked up to, who in reality are nearly 20 years older than I am, are younger than I am now in that particular clip. This record I've been pouring over isn't the work of my elders anymore. It's the frozen-in-time work of a group of late 20-somethings, and I sit here in my late 30s thinking about what they have to say to me from this amber-encased capsule. This, ultimately, of course, is the real reason why great art resonates with us again and again through our lives and invites us to come explore it again and again. Not because the art itself has changed. That, Paul Westerberg, Tommy Stinson, Slim Dunlap, and Chris Mars are forever frozen where they were in 1988 and 1989. But the high school boy who always had trouble wrapping his head around asking me lies is the 38-year-old who finds its Jackson 5 homage to be absolutely lovely. The college student who saw Rock and Roll Ghost as a song about older people now sees it as something about his peers and even people he's lost. In the final chapter of Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird, Scout stands on the porch of Boo Radley's house and looks at her neighborhood from a porch she's never stood on. I had never seen our neighborhood from this angle, she says, as she thinks about how it must have looked to Boo all those years. It's in that spirit that I'm even more grateful for what the creators of this box set have brought into the world. They've given me a new lens with which to view the same neighborhood, the same songs, the same performances. Only now, I get to see them the way that the original artists saw them all along. And kids, that's it for 2019. We'll be back next year with more transmissions. And if you dug the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And as always, you can listen at AquariumDrunkard.com, Spotify, Stitcher, Mixcloud, or on the TuneIn app. And if you haven't already, head over to our Patreon page. It's the best way you can directly support the work we do at Aquarium Drunkard. Not to mention, grant you access to exclusive mixes and assorted ephemera. Our podcast collage art comes courtesy of Michael Hentz. Check him out at Heavy Hymns. For a full list of music you heard in this episode, head over to AquariumDrunkard.com. You can hear Justin's weekly Aquarium Drunkard show on Sirius XM 
Wednesdays at 7 p.m. PST, with Encore broadcast on demand via the SiriusXM app. Check in for daily updates, interviews, mixes, and more at AquariumDrunker.com. See you in 2020. Thank you.